0: Well, let's get into uh, the, the Word today. Um, some of you are saying, I thought we read this passage last week, and, and that's because uh, we did, and or at least most of it, and yet I, as I was looking over the passage again, I felt like there's still more to say about this. In particular, I notice that sometimes when we read the Bible, all of us are guilty of this, we can overlook some very important details. Uh, some of them are hidden in the language itself, especially when we look at words like adverbs. There's a few adverbs that appear here in this passage. In fact, I think of the one that says suddenly, the second one that's immediately, and the third one at once, which is actually one word. In fact, it happens that adverbs, you know, for those of you who love grammar, adverbs are basically words that are added to verbs and nouns to, um, to basically modify them. They take a primary word that talks about uh, actions and, and things and really modifies them by degree and by quality so that we know not just what, that there's a thing, but what kind of thing. We know there wasn't just a, an activity, but there was a degree of activity took place And as this is the case with adverbs, they don't simply say what God did, but they give us depth and dimension as to how God did what he did. So that when it says there was a violent earthquake, that word violent is is an adverb defining the earthquake, and basically, the word violent is used in the uh, original language, easy for me to say... Um, (laughs) It means it was at the upper scale of earthquakes. It wasn't just a, a tremor or an aftershock. It was something that terrified those. And if you've ever been in an earthquake, you can know how unsettling they can actually be. Uh, but they, they not only could terrify, but they could literally bring tremendous destruction and catastrophe. So that when it says this happened, it says that not only was it violent, but it happened suddenly And it happened immediately, and it happened all at once. And that is, it wasn't little by little over the process of time. It certainly was not by some natural cause. The writer wants us to understand that it was a miracle, that this was, as the insurance writer says, an act of God, something that cannot be attributed to anything else but unto God himself. Now, notably, although in our English text, there are three different adverbs here of of suddenly and immediately and at once, but in the original, they're all the same word used three times. In fact, it's an interesting word that means something that happens immediately and suddenly and instantly, but with the implication that it's something that came unexpectedly. It wasn't like there had been a series of aftershocks leading up to this. It means there's this long period of calm, and yet at this very precise moment, everything is shattered by this earthquake. Probably a great deal of damage was done within the city. And it's interesting that this word is used repeatedly in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, to describe events that are sudden, they're unexpected, they're extraordinary. They are, we might say, interruptions in the ordinary workings and the ordinary course of this world and our life in it. And they are things that happen in such a way that they really cause the events that are taking place to conform themselves to the will and the plan of God. We might describe it as nothing more than a sudden invasion of the divine that overrides, overrides the very laws of nature to do something that is impossible. Impossible. The Bible calls them miracles. By definition, a miracle is a surprising or welcome event that is not explainable by natural or scientific laws and are therefore considered to be a work of God. You can't explain them by saying, well, see, this happened and that happened, and therefore we see this is the following. I have my own definition for a miracle I refer to it as an event which God radically redefines reality, making the impossible possible and the undoable done. He radically defines reality. Of course, when we read the Bible, we find it's full of these kind of miracles, especially ones that defy reality and make suddenly possible something that is impossible. Impossible. When Abraham is 100 years old and he has a baby, or I say his wife does, I got a little confused there today. I, I, my son pointed out to me, he said that, you know, the idea that a man could become a woman, I pointed out last week, was just kind of ludicrous, but he says, you have to understand that for nine months you were a man trapped in a woman's body. So, <laughs> so I guess there is a context for that, right? <laughs> Clever boy. But when we look at the story of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, or the feeding of the multitudes with the manna, or the virgin birth, or Peter walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus, there's over 163 different events that can only be explained by God intervening and invading the world of man and overruling the laws of nature To bring to pass what he wanted. And he did it in such a way not only that he could fulfill his will, but that we could step back in awe and wonder and recognize that he is there and he is not silent. There are those who say that miracles ceased with the death of the apostles, and there are those who say, My notes are suddenly blank. In fact, the whole thing is blank. Okay. Old school. <laughs> it's called paper. <laughs> but most Christians believe that God still is actively and regularly intervening in the affairs of human beings, that that miracles do happen. But what is the more common question that I hear, and I think myself sometimes, is whether God still, not that whether God still does miracles, but whether he will do that miracle for me. And if so, why is he slow about doing it? Why is God so slow in moving? It's interesting, someone said to me one time that God is never early, he is also never late, he's always on time. And that's my issue with God. I would like him to do the miracle early. In fact, I would like him to do miracles long before I ever realized I needed them so I wouldn't have to stress. You see, there are times it feels like God is moving at glacial speed It's so slow that we fear if he doesn't show up soon, he's going to be too late. He's going to miss the issue completely. And that's why we find that this is not just a contemporary issue or contemporary problem. This is something people have wrestled with since earliest times. In fact, the psalmist, some 18 different times, asks this same question. He says, Oh Lord, how long must I wait? Will you forget me forever? How long will you turn your face away from me? How long must I struggle with my thoughts? How long must my heart be sad day after day? How long will my enemies keep winning battles over me? How long, O Lord, will you just stand by and look on? The idea that God is simply standing on the sidelines while my clock gets cleaned by some circumstance or, or individual. You see, Oswald Chamber described this as the dark season of the soul. I prefer the dark cloud of unknowing. Those times when we ask the question, God, what are you doing? Or why aren't you doing? How can you allow this? How long will you allow this to go on? There are times that I know that God is there. I just don't know where times when I am forced to learn the lessons that the prophet Habakkuk had to learn. When he complained in in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1, he said, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear and you do not save? To which further on the Lord replied, I am doing something and you would not believe if you were told. And then he says, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay because he said the righteous will live by his faith. How long, O Lord, will you delay? And I love God's response. I'm doing plenty, you just don't see it. I'm moving and acting and doing things, but you just don't see it. I I would take, for example, Paul and Silas being beaten and arrested and thrown into a prison in the most horrible of circumstances, and there in the middle of a light, they're wondering, God, were you in this, or did we just make a mistake? You see, in today's world, there would have been people who said, well, you, their, their problem was they should have just ignored this woman and her issues and just gone about doing what they're doing because we're not supposed to speak out about those kind of wrongs because that, that just upsets people. In fact, one of the things that's terrifying me about the church in America today is increasingly I hear coming from the pastoral ranks in our nation, people simply saying, we just avoid those topics because they just lead to contention. And I would think, contention from who? People who don't know God, people who don't know his word, people who don't want to submit to his word. And so as a result, we find our churches are becoming quiet about the things that are most critical and most important. The things that are redefining our very essence, not just of the culture, but of the church itself. But God's word to Habakkuk was even though it doesn't look like I'm doing things, even though it feels like you're losing ground and not going forward, I am very busy, I am very engaged, and I'm telling you, that even though it seems to you like it's taking forever, wait for it. It will certainly come. But also remember that if you're going to be righteous, if you're going to live in right relationship with me, you have to learn how to live by faith and not simply always demand something you can see or to live by sight. In many ways, what God revealed to Habakkuk was beyond his actual comprehension. It was beyond his ability to understand what God was doing and why he would do it. Because as he decried the sins of Judah, their transgressions, their iniquity, and the evil that was going unrestrained within Jerusalem and the extended nation, and he's saying, God, how long? God comes back and says, oh, I'm I'm gonna deal with it but I'm gonna deal with it in a way that you're not gonna like. I'm gonna bring the Babylonians and they're going to crush and destroy and carry the people away into captivity. And his question then is, God, how can you judge an unrighteous people by a people who are even more unrighteous? And God kind of says, watch me. Watch me. He is struggling with what he could not accept, struggling with that dark cloud of the unknowing and yet he still chose to trust the same way Paul and Silas did, who in faith chose to sing in their imprisonment rather than to sink into despair and discouragement. Habakkuk went on to explain, he said in chapter three, he says, even though my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound and decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled with fear. In other words, when you're talking about an entire nation being destroyed, a city being taken captive, its people being enslaved, its men and children and women being slain, dead bodies, as Jeremiah describes it, lying throughout the city. Women eating their own children because of starvation. He says, when I thought about that, it was so terrifying to think of what was coming. And then he adds, yet I will wait patiently. And then he says, I think one of my favorite passages, so eloquently put. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, he's describing an ecological and economic disaster. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior for the sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights let me translate what that would look like if it were happened today even though i go to the gas station and there's no gas even though i go to the grocery store and there's no toilet paper and not only no toilet paper there're no hand towels there's no sanitizer there's no meat fish beef chicken pork, or impossible meat. There's nothing there. Even though I go to the bank and it's closed. I mean, this is the level of disaster that he saw coming. And he said, but even with that, I have determined that I will be joyful in God, my Savior. I think about Asaph in the 73rd Psalm going through a similar situation where he said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's a man saying, I'm seeing that the people who least deserve to be prosperous and in power are the actual ones who are being put into places of prosperity and power. People who by any biblical definition we could clearly say these are wicked men and women, these are evil men and women because they are proposing things that are an abomination in the eyes of God and unfortunately too many people are afraid. Well, you can't say that about Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) Uh, In all seriousness, friends, I do say it. She is a wicked and an evil woman who I suspect will burn in hell with her rosary beads because she doesn't know Jesus. And she's promoting some of the worst iniquity. And I have people always say, oh, you can't say things like that. I just did. (laughs) In the same way that John the Baptist called Herod a fox and Jesus called him a fox, These people, and a fox is not a complimentary term because they're cunning, deceitful robbers of souls. But Asa said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Who do I have in heaven but you, he says, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. None of that makes any sense if you feel like you have a better life here than you would in heaven. Because I think at one of the low moments in Jesus's ministry, I think at least low moment in the eyes of his apostles, they had been following Jesus and they saw the crowds getting bigger and bigger and the acclaim being broader and, and more, more flattering and complimentary. They, were, they had hitched their star to a rising star. There were a lot of good, great, quite crazy things going on. Miracles were happening. Everybody was talking about Jesus. And of course, they were his closest associates. But it says that after Jesus told the people that if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It says from that time forward, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus had the worst church growth program I have ever seen. <laughs> they left because they said his sayings are hard. We, in other words, we don't want to hear this. And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, do you want to go as well? <laughs> and Simon Peter answered. You know, when Simon Peter answers, it's kind of the coin flip of what you're going to get. He's either going to be complimented or he's going to be told he's a child of the devil. Either one. So he don't know which one's going to come. But this time he gets it really right because he speaks from the depth of his heart. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You see, some kind of wag would have said, well, you can go back to Capernaum or Bethsaida. You can start the fishing business. You got a wife and family that's there waiting for you to come home. Uh, you can, there, there's so many places you can go. You can go to Jerusalem and start your own teaching business. But you see, something happens when you truly come to a intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You may be able to think of walking away, but you can't think of where you would go. It's easy for me to contemplate. Well, I'll just give this preaching church God stuff up. The problem is, God's got his smell so all over me that everywhere I'd go, I would smell it, and I'd think to myself, "But what would I do?" People ask me, "Well, when are you going to retire?" Um. There have been many times I've retired. <laughs> but the last time when I told God I'm done, he said, slaves can't quit. <laughs> and I gotta be quite honest, whether I'm in this pulpit or who knows where on a corner down from Fred Meyer, whether, whatever I'm doing, th- this idea of not speaking about God and talking about Jesus is an incomprehensibility to me. What else is there to do with your life? And I know some of you are wrestling with that because you've got all sorts of plans. I I love, hate this phrase, my bucket list. I don't want to drag a bucket around with me. I don't want to have a list of things. My wife already gives me lists. I don't want to add to it. (laughs) And I can never get to the end of that one. No, I I have really just one thing on my to-do list. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and body, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. That's my to-do list. That's a day-to-day to-do list. And I'm guilty a lot of times of not doing some parts of that list. I'm pretty good with the first part. I struggle a lot with the second part. But the simple fact of the matter is that you and I come to a realization when we've really experienced Jesus that even though we can think about doing something else and walking away, we couldn't really contemplate where that would be. And quite honestly, I've never known a happy backslidden Christian. They all kind of looked like Jonah to me, covered in fish bile. You see, God's answer to us in those kinds of uncertainty, times of fear, times of defeat, times of discursion, is usually like the one he gave to Habakkuk when he said again in chapter two, verse three, though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. But if you want to be righteous, you're going to live by faith. If you're gonna to wanna to be righteous, you're gonna continue walking through the tunnel of chaos even though you can't make sense of what's going on in your life right now. Even though you're asking where are you God or why are you God or when do you, are you God and all those kind of interrogated questions that we ask of God. Despite all of that, we continue walking, we continue going forward because there is no other path that has any meaning for us, any purpose, any purpose. I mean, I get it, I understand, when time is running out, when the due date is nearing, when you've passed the deadline or at least it's approaching soon, when the noose is tightening and the anxiety is growing and you're on the verge of a panic attack, to say to somebody, wait for it, can seem like a cruel answer. Yet I found that God's word and its assurances have always come to pass in my life. Those things that I thought were so essential and never came to pass, I later learned were non-essential. And the things that I may have thought lightly of, I've come to discover, were the most important things. The tasks that you look at and say, well, you know, I don't have much to contribute. It's a menial task. It's no big thing. And later on, you realize that it had a it had a, a, a resonance to it that was so far beyond anything you understood. In the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, they have the, the Hall of the Children. One and a half million children, Jewish children were killed in the Holocaust by the Nazis and the fascists and the communists. And it's amazing what they've done. They've taken four candles and they use mirrors to reflect, refract it. So that when you look, it seems like the entire place is filled with thousands and thousands of candles. And the whole point is, if you can count the candles, you can count the number of children. And this classic work called Bloodlands about the Holocaust of, of the uh, people who lived in the Ukraine first by the Soviets, then by the Germans, and then again by the Soviets, 16 million people killed through that whole span, the 30s and the 40s. And the author said so poignantly, he says, if you try to comprehend the death of 16 million people, it's incomprehensible. But if you think about it in terms of one person at a time, 16 million times over and over and over and over, you begin to feel the impact. When you see this level of savagery in our world, you begin to realize that this is serious business that you and I are about. This very serious business that you and I are called to, that we're not just simply here to find the secret formula to the best life that we can enjoy in this world, but we're here to live with a kind of divine residence that somehow that we become amplifiers of God's grace and of his love and his mercy and his plan, that he has something destined for mankind far greater than we can know, and we are meant to resonate with that sound, that it vibrates off of us as it speaks into our very life. It may be abstract to think of it, but there's a level of resonance, a certain level of hurts that is referred to as the God resonance because it's a vibration that goes through all of creation, man and matter alike and throughout the heavens. And I often think that the creation began when God said. God's voice spoke and it resonated in creative power to create everything that's around us and it's still resonating throughout the universe. And when we come to Christ, he gives us a voice of resonance that echoes from us. And I try to keep, get people to understand that when you Speak of the things of God, there is a divine resonance that's coming out of you. And we worry about uh, how we say it and how well or how poorly we say it or whether we're completely accurate or true. And, And there's just something about saying, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There's a resonance that goes out into any person that is touched by that vibration. And it has a life, mind, body, soul, altering, Impact. That's what I believe. And that's why I'm not afraid or, or reluctant to say that to anybody because even if they react angrily, I just realize that it's just bounced up against something that doesn't want to be resonated. But good luck with that. We have these amazing promises. When the writer of Hebrews says at the end of his book in chapter 13, he says, God's promise to us is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He didn't say, you will never feel like I have forsaken you or you'll never feel like I have left you. But I'm just telling you the fact of the matter is I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You and I may make that promise to others, but we can't absolutely keep it because one day we will be gone. But God says, I will never be gone, that even in death. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter said, put all your troubles, your cares, your anxieties on him. Why? Because he will take care of you. That I don't have to be prepared for every eventuality. I don't have to know how to handle every situation. I don't have to foresee and plan ahead for every problem that might arise because I don't even have the capacity to do any of that. But I know that my God has says, you don't need to live a stress-filled, troubled life because I am committed to doing one thing and that's to take care of you. Paul to the Romans wrote... Most gloriously, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It is Christ Jesus who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. When Paul wrote to the Romans in in chapter five, verse one, he says, seeing that you have been saved by the grace of God, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember reading that one time and saying, well, I have peace with God, but I don't feel it inside. And see, the point is that Paul's speaking about peace as being a forensic reality. In other words, God is no longer opposed to me. I am no longer, as Paul said to the Ephesians, an object of God's wrath, but I am now part of the family of God. So that if you're not a Christian, you don't have peace, that makes complete sense because you are an object of wrath. Not that God looks at you and says, I can hardly wait to get you but rather he says that what is coming in your future is the wrath of God against all those who reject me. But when I got saved, I was no longer that. And I wasn't saved because I got better. I got saved because I got grace. And because of grace, which is unmerited favor, I have peace with God that he is no longer an adversary. He is my friend. And when we really believe that, that God only has good thoughts towards me and only is working to bring me to fulfill his good purposes, then I have not just a forensic peace or a factual peace, I have peace feelings inside of me. So that when those feelings begin to not be there, the explanation is, is because I'm no longer believing him that he is well-intentioned towards me or I'm not believing he has the power to control the situation. This is the reason Paul and Silas were singing and not sinking and why we should too in adverse times even when we don't fully or even partially understand what in the world is going on. And that's what this story is designed to tell us that even in the depths of defeat and discouragement he is still on the throne and as we talked about last week you're still his favorite we had our some of our grandkids with us for about just a short 10 11 days Whew. <laughs> But there is not a moment that I don't think about them that it doesn't bring a smile on my face and a sense of warmth and pleasure inside my heart. And I often think, that's how God looks at you and me. It's not how you look at you. It may not be even how people around you look at you. But it's amazing to think that that's how God looks at me. He isn't hung up with age or youth or intelligence or prosperity or cleverness or wittiness and all that kind of stuff. God is not shaking. I was thinking of this article today. This little four-year-old girl has an IQ of 146, the youngest to be ever inducted into the Mensa Society. And I thought to myself, I had an IQ of about 46 at that age. <laughs> but God isn't impressed with an IQ of 146 or 186. Because God is the very essence of what it means to have an intelligent quotient. He also has a power quotient. He also has a holy quotient and a truth quotient. Things that impress us and move us and we think make somebody more valuable than somebody else are not the things. Because in the reality, even if somebody is a genius without Christ, they very easily can become an evil genius and not just in Austin Power movies. One million (laughs) dollars. Peter put it this way, he says, you're a specially chosen people. You didn't happen to just come along and lucky enough to get caught up in the net of salvation. No, you were specially chosen. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Still, I think it's fair to ask, why so often does God wait to the very last moment to save me? Why is it that he never is early, he's never late, in fact, he always shows up right on time? I mean, if God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-good, he's the all-loving God, why does he make us wait? And why does he make us struggle when he could change everything suddenly in a moment? Does he find pleasure in watching me twist in the wind? Or is there a purpose in letting me go mad? You see, in part, the answer is found in the old adages. Remember, the one that says, a watched clock never moves, or a watched pot never boils? It really refers to a, a point of view that we have that we think that success is dependent upon a certain timing of our own. Selection and choosing or opinion. And we overlook the fact that God is the Lord of time. That he has an illustration in scripture of how he has stretched time or he has compressed time at his will. We often don't think of this dynamic of God's physical lordship over the nature and the laws of nature. That he can make something take forever. He can make something take no time at all. He stopped the movement of the stars in the sky and the rotation of the planet and the earth when he wanted to extend Israel's victory. He could pick up up Philip from one place and immediately translate him to another so that in a technically sense, he could be in two places at one time. God simply wants us to understand that none of these things are outside of him, that even though he created the laws that govern the universe, he is not governed by the laws that he created. So there is nothing that he can't do. And that's why it's a matter of, it all depends on your point of view. When Peter put it this way, he said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And we think of that in terms of the non-Christian, but I think oftentimes it applies to the believer as well, that God many times drags something on interminably because he's really trying to bring you to repentance for sin in your life that you don't even see or maybe don't even understand yet if we consume ourselves with waiting for God to change something or someone more often than not, not only will it feel like it never is going to happen, but we may miss out on what God is more concerned about and that is changing you. It is only when we stop focusing on the change we want to see and instead focus upon whatever change I need to make so that I can begin worshiping him. It's only then that we discover that God is working to bring about a change in my life. And when it's completed, he changes everything else that needs to be changed. In fact, James put it this way. He said, let patience, and the word there really means patient endurance. It's a word that simply describes in the originalist idea that you're having to hang on with everything you have because it's hard and it's difficult and you don't know if you can make it. But he says, when you go through that, he said, let it fulfill the work that that situation was designed to fulfill. That you may be mature, fully developed and complete and lacking nothing. Nothing. Several years ago, I, I got a, a staph infection in my elbow and I ended up in the hospital for about seven days. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I drove to the doctor's office. I, they said, what's wrong? And I showed him my elbow. It was like this basketball singing on my arm. And I, and I said, well, I, I've, I've got this thing in my elbow. And he goes, okay, he took my temperature. He said, how did you get here? I said, I drove. He said, well, we're calling the ambulance. We're gonna take you directly to the hospital because <laughs> I had a like a 107 fever or something like that. It was like crazy. I don't even know how I was thinking correctly. In fact, probably wasn't. Uh, But as I was laying there, you know, going through the recovery and all of that stuff, and I will spare you all the the really pustule death story. It's kind of fascinating, though. (laughs) You got all that out of me. Yeah, we'll be back tomorrow, take some more. (laughs) Anyway, quite honestly, I was kind of, out of it for about three or four days. But I remember towards the end of my stay there, one of the nurses started talking with me and, and uh, she started sharing her personal story. I, I think it got out that I was a pastor. And she's saying, I, I've got a son I'm really struggling with. And I said, oh yeah? He says, "He's 18, yeah. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, He's really not very motivated. I mean, I, he, he just kind of wants to hang around. I don't know if you've ever met one like this. But not very motivated to do anything in his life. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't really want to look for a job. And he says, I got really encouraged, she said, the other day when she said, he said to me, hey, mom, are there any jobs available at the hospital? And she said, well, yeah, we have a whole board listing all sorts of jobs. And he says, oh, really? He says, well, are there like any kind of like doctor jobs? <laughs> and she said... Son, you have to go to school to become a doctor. Oh, you mean like kind of like a six-week course? Now, I've had doctors, and I think that may have been the case. But we all know that this is a huge financial, personal, lifetime commitment to be able to become a physician. It's not something that you just walk into. And yet somehow we think that Christian maturity is something that we can just take a six-week course that I can just read the Bible once and I've got it. And you may have it, but does it have you? Because it's only when the Bible has you that you begin to grow and change. And now her son is the head of surgery. No. uh, (laughs) But here's really the crux of this whole story. Peter and Silas I mean, Paul and Silas, rather than focusing upon their circumstances, which were horrible, they made a choice. They made a very conscious decision that they were going to focus on the Lord by singing praise and worshiping him and praying, rather than cringing and crying and complaining about their circumstances. They didn't see how or when or what was going to happen, but they were assured in their heart that God was doing something. Despite the fact that they had absolutely no evidence and everything in the opposite, that there to be any education. Because when you were put into prison in the Roman world, it wasn't like you were sent up the river for 10 years. It was a short time stay that would either lead to you being tortured and then kicked out or executed. They didn't have an overcrowding problem. When it got too crowded, they just killed them faster. So this is is a death sentence, essentially. If it's not from the sword, it would have been from disease or starvation or hunger or neglect. Because if you wanted to eat, your family had to bring you food. If you were put in there to become death, you stayed there until you died or your family came and bailed you out. And there was a mindset that if that happened to you and you perished there, you deserved it. That was your rewards. The gods have judged you. But see, but unknown to them, beyond their ability to see, God was setting the stage not only for the conversion of this jailer, but his family and possibly even a whole group of other prisoners with him. At that moment, the very future of the church in Philippi rested in their response to that moment, if not to all of Europe. You see, our problem is that we, by necessity, are short-sighted. We try and forecast or predict the future, but James really rebukes us for that when he says in chapter 4, 13 of his letter, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and do this and do that. He says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I mean, when it comes to the future, we should admit that we're agnostic. We don't know, except we do know him who controls it. You see, God, unlike you, not only knows the future, he holds the future, he controls the future. He is, by very definition, the future. That all of human history was started by him and everything that happens in the world is being drawn towards a culminal point in which all things will be consumed within himself. And if you're a child of God, you are an integral part of his future despite how difficult or hard or unpromising the moment you're in right now may feel. But there is more. Because through the apostle's suffering and through the earthquake, God removed an obstacle more resistant to stones and stocks and chains and gates and bars. He did a more dramatic miracle. He removed unbelief from a Roman jailer's heart According to the Roman historian Sallust, he said that the Roman prisoners were put in a dark, hideous, terrifying, and stench filled hole. And those who ran them were negligent and cruel and sadistic, the kind of person most of us would say clearly they are outside the realm of redemption. They were men who were so hardened against human suffering that they felt nothing when they saw others suffering, and in pain. They became totally, we call, sociopathic personalities. No empathy, no concern, no care. The earthquake was not designed so much to free the apostles as it was to free the jailer who lived in a far worse prison than they were in, a prison of sin, a darkness, and ultimately death. So that miraculously and suddenly and immediately, this man was confronted not only with his own immorality and his own mortality, but his eternal damnation as he cried out to them, What must I do to be saved? In that moment, this earthquake opened his eyes to the reality of God far beyond anything he'd ever allowed in his life before. And the answer that they gave was very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did that entail for him? First, I would say it meant that he had to renunciate the gods of Rome, who in his case, their worship was not only mandatory, but a refusal to worship those gods was punishable. We're not told what his future was, but I think it's very likely he would have been removed from his position. The second, it meant he had to come with total reliance upon Jesus' death and resurrection as the means of forgiveness and as essential for entrance into heaven. The whole religious system he had learned of sacrifices and offerings and acts of service no longer had a part in what it meant to be saved. To be saved was a total dependence upon what Jesus had done for him on the cross, upon Jesus' open tomb. thirdly, he had to repent. The word literally means had to have a changed life. So when the Bible says repent and be saved it's it's saying that you have to reach out to God saying change my life and he, he was the punisher is now becomes the healer as he treats their wounds the tormentor now is the one who comforts them as he brings them into his home and he feeds them and he cares for them he who was the master now became the one who served and fourthly it meant rebirth as illustrated by his confession or his baptism, that baptism is really nothing more than a public confession and certainly nothing less, the fact that I have put away the old life and I'm embracing a new life in Christ Jesus. All of this is essential because only as converts completely renounced their former life could Christianity begin to impact the culture of Philippi? For not only did it remove the barrier of sin that separated man from God, it also removed the barrier that separates mankind one from another. The Roman world was a strictly stratified place, a kind of caste system of its own where At the top was the patricians, those were the royalty, the people who had noble birth. Then there were the senators, men of wealth and power and influence, followed by the equestrians, Pontius Pilate was the equestrian. They were the individuals who were trying to enrich themselves through their government service so that they could become senators or maybe even a governor. Below them were the men who had been set free and made citizens. Below them were the ones who were slaves. The city of Rome, most of the half of its citizens or dwellers were slaves. Citizens were separated from non-citizens, the rich from the poor, men from women. The gap was vast. And what Christianity did when it became living and lived shattered all those barriers and and declared that all men are equal, created in the image of God. So that Paul would write to the Galatians, he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male or female, for all of you are one in Christ. And it's easy for us in our time and in our age to miss how radical that statement was to his world and how threatening it was to everything that Rome believed itself to be that every culture creates its own caste system and it protects that because that is the way they maintain order. And when people rebel against that casteism, it creates chaos. But here's the problem. When the French overthrew the kings of France and set up a republic, they did so But they rejected God as well. And what followed was bloodshed, chaos, and ultimately thousands upon deaths. And Napoleon came to power and led them into endless wars against their neighbors, destroying many lives, destroying the nation. When the Bolsheviks and the Russians and the Democrats revolted against the Tsars... Czars who had ruled over them with such, not just simply cruelty, but a lack of human concern. So self-absorbed that they didn't concern themselves with the starvation, the suffering of their own people. And when they overthrew them, like the French did, it was a rightly done, rightly to overthrow them. But what did they do? They too rejected God. Each of them made man the center of the place, of, of the universe, not the God of the universe, not the God of the Bible. And when the Weimar Republic became so corrupt and and hyperinflation destroyed the nation and people are living in economic poverty, the people really understandably chose the Nazis because they brought them bread to eat and gave them work. But the Nazis also bring in a system where there was no God. What has made America unique? we not only revolted against the oppressions of a mad king, King George was madder than a hatter, but we did so believing that it was God's will for us to be a free people. That this was the right order of things and rather than removing God like the others, we lifted God up and said in God we trust. So when Christianity began to spread in the Roman world, they increasingly sought to destroy it. But it's easy to miss the fact that what began to translate in 200 years later at the Edict of Milan, when religious freedom was granted, some poor historians often say, well, that's when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. Can I go on record and say, Christianity never became the official religion of Rome? What the Edict of Milan did was gave religious freedom. Men were allowed to worship any way they wanted and Constantine's empire prospered. The whole key to all of this is the fact that what Christ does is he transforms people, he transforms therefore societies and makes them place where people can be free to worship God. It is the devil's agenda to remove God with the empty promise of some kind of utopian society where everybody enjoys equity although not equality that brings a culture down to its knees and destroys it. How do you and I confront this madness that we see around us? Well the answer really is quite simple. We pray we preach, we live our faith. We understand that circumstances are allowed by God in order to put us in a position where we can speak God's truth into that moment. That we're not afraid to call certain people and certain things wicked, evil, diabolical. That there are certain ideas that begin to flow out of government that are satanic and have failed every time they've been trailed and all they've ever accomplished is the oppression of people and the robbing of their freedom and their liberties. And the answer for us is not to say as the French did, off with their heads, but the answer is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into that moment that men might hear the truth, believe and be saved. I guess that's enough. Let's pray. Father God, I ask in the name of your son Jesus that you would help us to look at the lives of the apostles and how they lived. They weren't vitriolic, they weren't hateful, but they spoke the truth, Lord. They made the lines between good and evil very clear and simple to see. They didn't use confusing rhetoric or plays on words. They didn't go around casting out slogans. They called sin sin. They decried darkness. They pointed to evil as being evil. And they called men to repentance for their sins. They never judged a man for what he had been, but they also didn't fall into the trap of pretending that sinful behavior is okay. God, you're calling people to be courageous in a time when courage is slowly slipping away, where people are ducking their heads and keeping quiet and are afraid to say what they think. They're afraid of being canceled or docked or taunted or trolled. <laughs> when God, you said very clear in your word, Jesus, you said it very clear in your word that this would happen if we stand for you. Lord, we are men and women who are created like Esther for such a time as this. Your eyes are going to and fro upon the face of the earth looking for a man or a woman who will stand in the gap that is ripping our culture and our society apart. Help us to be like Isaiah. Cleanse our lips as you cleansed his and help us turn and look to you and say, here am I, Lord, use me. We pray, Father, for that profound move of your spirit in our life in this time, in Jesus' name, amen.